the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are going to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb here on earth. We're going to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven in the presence of the Father. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will be here in just a moment with today's message. You know, here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is here now to take your prayer request. And thank you so much for listening. Today's Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Michael Oxentenko is entitled The Marriage of the Lamb. That's the marriage of the Lamb. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. Yesterday, we brought you the first portion of this message, but due to our time constraints, we were not able to complete it. We will do so now. Let's get underway with the conclusion to the marriage of the Lamb with our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentanko. Settle down with your bride. So at the end of the millennium, Jesus is coming with the new Jerusalem, his bride, adorned. And planet Earth will become the new home of the Lamb and His wife, the New Jerusalem. Now, you don't need to know much more than that. If you know that, you know prophecy. It kind of fits into that beautiful picture. So important point number one, the marriage feast was never in the bride's house. So Christ isn't going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb on Earth. Point number two, the marriage feast was always in the bridegroom's father's house. We are going to heaven, to the center of the universe, to Orion to where the four living creatures are at to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. So at the second coming, Jesus is coming as the bridegroom after the marriage judgment in heaven is over. So what's been holding up the second coming is the marriage hasn't occurred. In the book of Revelation, you know, Jesus is knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea, the final church era, and he can't get in. He can't get in to consummate the marriage. He can't get in to bring the bride to his father's house because she shut the door. So he waits on his people. So when this investigative judgment is over in heaven, Jesus comes back. How many of you want the investigative judgment to get over? I want it over, okay? He's coming to take us to his father's house for the marriage supper. Now let's look at some verses that will help us out here. Turn to Matthew 18, 23. Jesus said another parable, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, that's an investigative, accounting kind of judgment. Matthew 22, 2, we have already seen that the kingdom of heaven is likened into a marriage feast that a king had for his son. So it means both. It's both an investigative, accounting judgment, and it's a marriage of a son to a bride. It has to do with both ideas. So you can actually say the investigative judgment is, in fact, the marriage of the Lamb. So here in this parable, in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the kingdom of heaven is likened to an accounting exercise where the books are reviewed that settles accounts with the servants in which one servant of the king is pointed out by other servants because he has failed to forgive his fellow servant. He was forgiven a great debt he could never repay. And so he does not forgive his fellow servant owes him a little debt and thus he shows he's unworthy of a kingdom that's based on the principles of forgiveness 
And based on that investigative judgment, that unforgiving servant is removed from the kingdom forever. So in this parable, Jesus is teaching us that we are forgiven a great debt that we could never repay. The cross of Christ is forgiveness planted between the poles of the beginning and the end. And God is saying in Christ, I forgive you of your sins. In the kingdom judgment, the king wishes to settle these kind of accounts with his servants who are believers. You see, the servants aren't unbelievers, they're believers. So the investigative judgment's not the judgment of the wicked, it's the judgment of those who have claimed God. And thus it is a pre-advent judgment of those who profess to be God's people who are Christians. The kingdom of heaven is like a marriage and a judgment, when you put it together, in which the king settles account in the marriage of his son to his people. Daniel seven twenty six. Take your Bibles and turn there. The Bible says the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be what? This is the little horn antichrist power. What happens in the judgment to the Lord? His dominion shall be, what's this, taken away. If you look in Daniel 7, Jesus gets dominion in this judgment. So there's an imposter in history, a church-state system that claims to be Christ, the Son of Man, that has eyes like the eyes of a man. But he's not the Son of Man. His dominion is taken away to be consumed, destroyed to the end. Now look at verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms and of the whole heavens shall be given to whom? To the people of the saints the most high. We receive the kingdom as the outcome of that judgment. The Bible is absolutely clear that the kingdom of heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High. But in the parable in Matthew 22, 1, Jesus plainly states that the kingdom of heaven is like a marriage feast that a king gave for his son. So in this parable, the kingdom feast is not your feast or my feast or anyone else's feast. The feast is God's feast for his son. So what's the focus of the judgment? You and me or Jesus? Jesus. Now look at Daniel 7, 13, 14. Here we have in the very poetic center of the book of Daniel this event in which Christ receives from his father, his bride. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now in the text, he's not coming to the earth. He's coming to his father inside the throne room of the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. It says he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, he's married to his future kingdom, to his people for time and eternity in the heavenly judgment. So in a pre-advent heavenly judgment in Daniel 7, just before Jesus returns, God the Father gives the kingdom of this world to his son Jesus for all time. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet, because that work has to be finished. This is the marriage of the Lamb to his bride. The judgment is not an earthly event. This accounting kind of investigative judgment is a heavenly event. Luke 18, 12, Jesus tells us plainly that Jesus receives his kingdom in heaven and then he returns. Open your Bibles, turn to Luke 19, 12. Now, in verse 11, the disciples asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom? That was the era of the Roman Empire. And he's saying, no, it's too early. In verse 12, he tells him the correct timing for this. He said, therefore, a nobleman went where? What does the Bible verse say? Into a far country, that's heaven, to do what? To receive a kingdom. So does he receive his kingdom on earth, or does he receive his kingdom in heaven? The verse indicates he receives his kingdom in heaven. 
and then he returns. So Christ cannot come until that heavenly marriage, which is the judgment, the pre-advent judgment, when he receives his kingdom, is done. When it's done, he comes back. The Son of Man, friend, comes to the Ancient of Days in heaven to receive every one of us by name in the presence of his Father. And that is why Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. Let me vision it with you a little bit here. How does Jesus receive his kingdom? Does he get up there and God says, here's the kingdom, here are the keys, go fly a kite? Or is it personal and related to each and every one of us? Turn to Revelation 3.5. Jesus says to John in the island of Patmos, the one who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments. And I like this verse. You know, if I had a pen and a new Bible, I would underline that verse real hard, but I wouldn't break my paper. He who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments. And what does Jesus say? And I will not blot his name out of the book of life. That's huge. He will not blot our names out of the book of life. He says, this is what he does. When he does not blot our name out of the book of life, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's the Daniel 7 judgment when the Ancient of Days is on his throne. Millions of angels surround the heavenly throne. The Son of Man is carried in the Aramaic language to the Ancient of Days, is presented before him inside the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, the throne room of God itself. And why does Jesus make that journey? So he can talk to God about you and me by name. So he can confess us before God as if there is no other on his heart. And when he's done doing that, his marriage vows, the marriage judgment is over. The judgment, Daniel 7, is the marriage and the feast that follows of the second coming. Jesus comes for his bride to take her to the marriage feast of the second coming. Turn to Revelation 19, 7 11. Now, how should we relate to the investigative judgment? Should we get all prickly about it and feel fearful that we're not going to make it because our lives are coming up in this auditing of the books? Or should we look to Jesus, who wants to confess our names, who has pledged to not blot our names out of the book of life if we really come to him sincerely? Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Laodicea opens the door. Laodicea lets the bride in. And so they move to the marriage feast. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. The judgment is over. It ends with the destruction of the earth. There's so much information in the first part of the kingdom parable that we looked at that we can't miss in this study of Revelation. So I'm going to go back to Matthew 22 to end our discourse here. Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. So there's tragedy in the story here. In the parable, the feast is given by the Father for his Son and no one else. The kingdom feast belongs to Jesus Christ by right. It is God's honor to honor his Son. The only superstar in the mind of the Father is his Son, the groom. The guests are invited because they are, out of the kindness of the King. In the parable, Jesus is worthy. And the only thing that makes the guests worthy in the context is the fact of their choice that they have accepted the invitation. If they don't accept the invitation, they're unworthy. They accept the invitation, they become worthy. So in the parable, the king makes the feast. That means he's the one who sets it in order. 
It is not prepared by the guests or even the son himself. It is prepared by the king. It is his will. Thus the kingdom feast is God's will. It is the father's work, his feast for his son. It represents his grace mediated through his son to the guests. That means the feast was always the father's plan and no one else's will but his goodwill for the guests because of his love for the Son. You see, the focus is on the Son of God. How many times do we think that it all wraps around us? I've heard people say, you know, when there's a final generation that finally proves themselves to God, then God will come. Friend, I don't know about you, but I didn't prove much to God last week. Are you with me? I didn't. I had a rough week. God proved himself to me last week by grace, by his love by the cross, by forgiveness. I accept the invitation of the marriage feast. I want to go. I don't want any sin in my life. But I'm not deceived. I put no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul says. We put no confidence in the flesh. So in verse 3, the king sends his servants to call those who are invited to the marriage feast. We call that evangelism. Holding meetings, Bible studies, inviting your neighbors any way you can. Let people know about the coming kingdom. The Greek uses a perfect verb in verse 3 to describe the invitation. Literally, he sent his servants to call those, quote, who had already been invited to the marriage feast. You know, the first call is not given to unbelievers. The first call comes to those who have known the truth. It comes to those who have heard, who know the Bible, prophecy, who have a knowledge of the second coming, that there is a marriage feast to attend. It comes to Christians. It comes to believers who had every opportunity to understand the prophecies and to prepare. It comes to Christians who don't care in the context. In fact, it comes to Christians who have had every opportunity at the end of time to respond to the invitation. But they don't respond in the parable. I don't want to be in that group. I do not want to be there. In the parable, the king sends his servants because he wants his enlightened people who have had great opportunities to come to the feast. They are his first concern. Sadly, verse 3 ends by saying they would not come. So what does the king do? When his guests who have already received an invitation will not come to the marriage feast. In verse 4, the king calls them again. He doesn't give up. Matthew 22, 4, and again he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves are killed. And everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. Now, everyone was looking forward to the feast but the calf. Calf didn't like the feast in the parable. Bad day for the calf. Great day for everybody else. Verse 4 says plainly, everything is ready. The Greek is a perfect verb. Everything has already been prepared and made ready. Friend, you cannot force God's calendar by trying to prove something to God. God has it figured out. His grace has sustained us. His grace will carry us. God invites his end-time people to a feast that is not based on our achievements. It is not the fruit of our good efforts. It's not because we can pinch ourselves and say we're holier than other people outside of our church. It is not made ready because they are good or bad people in the context. It is ready only because the king himself has made it ready. It is ready because the king has taken the initiative to make sure that everything is in place for the feast. And thus the guests can come without fear of not being ready. The only way to get to the feast, friend, is to accept the invitation of the king to come. It's that basic. Every morning we ought to get on our knees and say, Father, I accept the invitation to the feast. Order my life for the feast. I accept the call. 
The response to the invitation is the critical focus of this parable. Matthew 22, 5 and 6. But they made light of it and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Verse 5 says, they made light of it. You know, I've been in Bible studies with people, and I've opened the book of Revelation and Daniel to lead them to divine truth. And I've seen certain people say, man, it's awesome. Look what God is showing us here. Then I've seen others say, so what? Pastor Michael Oxentenko will be back in just a moment. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. Call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here now, once again, Pastor Michael Oxentenko. I don't want to make light of something that is meant to bring me to heaven. Here are believers at the end who don't value the invitation, the prophetic call. And more profoundly, they are hostile to the invitation in time. The Greek verb uses the verb amaleo, which literally means to neglect. They didn't make the invitation a priority in their personal lives. They didn't care about their service in the church and the calling of God to share their faith with others. No, they were only into their own things. Other things were more important than the king's offer to come. It is a principle that those who neglect the call will in time persecute those who give the call. They seized the servants the second time, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Notice the response of the king in verse 7. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. In verse 8, the king focuses on the reality that the first batch of guests will not come as he so much desired. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. What is it that makes someone worthy for the kingdom feast, the kingdom of God? Is it our denominational pedigree? Is it our social status? Is it our success, how much Bible knowledge we have? And I encourage every one of you to have Bible knowledge. Is it church membership or the office that we hold? In this parable, a guest is worthy only because the guest has responded to the king's call to come to the feast. No other factor is considered in the king's judgment on his guests. Those who come are worthy because they accept the invitation. And thus they come. And those who refuse are not worthy because they don't accept the invitation or value it. That's how he discerns who is worthy. Friend, it is our response to the kindness of the king, God the Father, that makes us fit for the feast in the mind of the king. This truth becomes a little clearer in verses 9 to 10. He says, Go therefore to the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. Notice it's not some exclusive end-time little club claiming to keep people out because it's special. It's an end-time message that opens the doors so as many people as possible can come in and go to the marriage feast. The Greek word for street here indicates a street that is the main highway on the outside of the city, not the inside. The city represents those on the inside. 
The thoroughfare describes the people who are coming to the city or leaving it on the outside of the city. So going out to people who don't have a clue and bringing them in, that's what the final call is about. It does not describe the people who naturally live in the city. Verse 10, And those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I like the way the Bible says it. They invited all whom they found. I mean, I want every person I know to come to Jesus Christ and to be a part of God's kingdom, period. How many people in your neighborhood have not received the call? Let's give the invitation. The last call to this planet, friend, is an evangelistic call that goes out to every single person who will hear it. No prejudice on God's part will cause anyone to be lost. The king invites everyone to the feast. In the final call of the marriage feast, there is no distinction made, as I said, between good and evil people. Have you ever felt like I'm a bad person and I can never be a part of God's kingdom? The preacher has. The preacher has. Have you? The parable teaches us that this is not what it's about. The call of the king looks beyond that. He loves you more than how good or bad you are. He loves you because he's a kind king. And he loves his son, and thus the invitation is mediated through the son for you to come and be a part of the joy of the celebration. In verse 11, we have a picture of the final investigative judgment. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now what does this garment represent in Jesus' story? In the context, the garment represents the guest's recognition and acceptance of the king's invitation and preparation. Revelation 19 says the bride has the wedding garment, thus she is ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it is the outward evidence that the guests have responded to the call as it was sent by the king. It is the recognition that they are satisfied with the king's invitation. It is the recognition that they are not ashamed of the king's preparation and planning. It is the recognition that they believe the king when he said everything has been made ready. They come to the marriage feast in the king's way and not their own way. The gift of the marriage robe, friend, represents the righteousness of Jesus that comes by faith in the king. Look at Isaiah 61, verse 10. A couple more verses here. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Why do we rejoice as Christians? What does it say in the verse? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. I rejoice because I can't save myself. I can't make myself white. But God has put a robe like that on me in Jesus. And therefore, my Christian experience can be a happy, joyful one. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, he has lavished his love and grace on me, his acceptance and righteousness. Therefore, I rejoice in God my salvation. That's what Isaiah is saying. The text says, he's done all this for me. It's God's gift And thus I benefit from it. And what's my response is to worship him with a positive attitude of his kindness toward me. The investigative judgment, friend, is a marriage and a celebration of Christ's righteousness and the Father's gift in Jesus Christ. It is not a celebration of our achievements. So what happens to the believer who stands in the judgment without the righteousness of Jesus Christ telling God how perfect he is? What happens to someone who tries to convince God that there's something good in him rather than recognizing that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and thus we need the white robe. What happens to the person who disregards the robe for Pharisaism? What happens to the believer who thinks he's good enough for heaven without the king's gift of the wedding garment? Matthew 22, 13, 14. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot 
and cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why is it that God's grace is so hard for the human family lay hold of? Because it's contrary to our nature to believe that God in Jesus accepts us, forgives us, makes us ready for his coming kingdom by raw grace in our lives. Friend, hear the call. I appeal to every one of you here today. Hear the call. Accept the invitation. Put on the robe. Let God put on the robe for you. And come to the marriage of the Lamb. And feast at a table of grace with Jesus there in the Father's house. And learn to know the one who gave his Son to save you for time and eternity in the kingdom of God. God bless you. Well, that will conclude the marriage of the Lamb. Today's Reaching Your Heart, the second portion of that broadcast. Don't forget the entire message is available for you right now, if you'd like, at reachingyourheart.com. Have you ever wondered what happens five minutes after death? Do you long for the assurance of eternal life? Is there a longing in your heart for something beyond this life? Dark Tunnels and Bright Lights by Mark Finley is the message of hope that you need. This book presents the real truth about life after death, and it is more amazing than you can imagine. Call for your copy today. Here's the information you need. The telephone number is 855-888-4673. 855-888-4673-855-888-HOPE. Or you can go to the website reachingyourheart.com. Call for your copy today. The book is yours for a donation of any size. And remember that your donations help to keep this ministry on the air. And we thank you for your support. And we hope that you'll join us again next time we get together for another edition of Reaching Your Heart.